This is the 11KBW Employment Podcast, where every month members of our employment team get together to chat about a recent case. I'm Ruth Kennedy, and today I'm joined by the fabulous Judy Stone. She's going to tell me about a case called Lorelei and Credit Suisse. It's a court of appeal case on litigation privilege. I don't know if that's how you're supposed to say it, but I am going to say Lorelei, and hopefully it will remind us of the Gilmore Girls. Hi, and thank you very much for that introduction, Ruth. Yes, and I'm really pleased you said that about Lorelei, because I am notoriously bad at remembering case names, and this one I remember for that very reason. So, <laughs> so thanks for that. Good. What was the key issue in this case? The key issue is whether the identity of a client is subject to privilege. What context did this case arise in? So the claimant in this case was bringing a fraud claim. And the details delve completely into the world of banks and credit notes and CDOs, collateral debt obligations. But I'm really sorry to say we're not going to be going into all of that here. I know it's very disappointing. But the reason why... It was relevant, these questions of privilege, is only about a limitation issue. So what the claimant was saying was that they didn't know certain facts, and that's why time should be effectively extended within the meaning of the Limitation Act. So it was relevant to know who was instructing the solicitors, because that party may or may not know things that would be relevant to the issue of whether or not they could bring that claim, even though it was on its face out of time. Why is this case important for us? Well, it's important for us for a number of reasons. And I think in some ways, the most important thing is that it is a reminder that we don't have this protected area around litigation or advice where everything will be privileged. You've always got to look at the specific tests that have been set out in previous case law and make sure that the thing that you're talking about really does fit within it. And I think that's relevant for us as lawyers and as employment lawyers for two primary reasons. The first is we're asked to advise. We're often asked to advise about disclosure issues. And I don't know about you, but privilege comes up quite a lot in my practice and often in the middle of the night, often at late notice, often right up against a deadline when everyone's quite cross about how long everything's been taking. So you don't want to then go off and spend some time researching from the beginning upwards. We want to have these kinds of principles at our fingertips. And the second point is that I think we get very used to operating in a world of our imagination where everything we say and do is privileged. And that's not always right unless it fits within the tests either for legal advice privilege or litigation privilege, it's not necessarily going to be privileged. And our identity may or may not be privileged as well, which is the converse of this case. So I think we need to be quite careful about sending all those silly emails. It might be useful to have a refresher of some of the basic principles that you've already mentioned, legal advice privilege and litigation privilege. Can you tell us a bit about those? Sure. So They're quite distinct ideas, although they come from a certain shared public policy background. I mean, really, what the courts have been trying to do is to make sure that people can get the legal advice that they need without being scared that another party in litigation will be able to see it. And so it divides up into primarily these two categories. When it comes to legal advice privilege, that's what it says on the tin. If you're getting legal advice, then the communications that are for that purpose, contents of that advice will be privileged. That's not what Lorelei's about. Lorelei's about the other strand, which is litigation privilege. And what that's about is documents and material that come into being to do with litigation. And it's got quite a, a strict test associated with it. What's the test? So the modern test 
is that the communications must be between the parties or their solicitors and third parties for the purpose of obtaining information or advice in connection with litigation that's either existing or in contemplation. But only, there are three points to this. First, you've got to have that point about litigation must be either in in progress or in contemplation. Secondly, is the sole or dominant purpose test. So these are communications that must have been made for that sole or or dominant purpose. And thirdly, it has to be adversarial and not investigative or inquisitorial, if I can pronounce all those words. And that can be quite interesting for things like investigations that I know some of us do. When you're in the world of investigations, litigation privilege doesn't help you at all. And how does Lorelei fit into this rubric or where does it come in? What was happening in Lorelei was that the claimant was saying that there was a protected sphere around litigation and everything really to do with that would be privileged. Whereas what the defendants were saying, we have to look at those tests, we have to see, is this a communication? Did it come into being for this sole or dominant purpose? What did the case decide? So the case decided that the identity of a client is not without more subject to litigation privilege. If someone wants to assert privilege in relation to that identity, you have to provide particular evidence to explain why it is privileged in the context of the case. But that's actually not the only thing that was decided because, in fact, the court went on to look at things like relevance and to think about whether these parties should be ordered to provide information or disclose documents that covered these issues. And one of the things that is interesting is that the court decided it wasn't actually necessary or proportionate in accordance with the test to provide some of this information. And what's interesting about that is not only does it show that even if you get off the ground in this privilege point, you might not get what you are asking for, but really what the court's saying is you had all the information you needed anyway, so you didn't really need this at all. So even when this type of issue comes up, you shouldn't lose sight of the other applicable principles like relevance, like proportionality. Yeah, and I think there is really a lesson, a wider lesson for all of us in litigation, which is it is so easy to get caught up in the trees and to forget the big picture stuff, to forget the wood and to lose sight of what you already have. So if we're talking about, you know, another party waiving privilege. I think people can get quite excited about that sometimes. But just taking a step back, thinking, what happens if I ask for disclosure of of that document or that information? Does it get me what I want in this litigation? Or is this going to create a sideshow that's going to waste time and money and doesn't really, in the end, further my client's cause in the case? Doesn't take you any further. Yeah. Was there anything in particular that stood out in the judgment to you as quite an interesting point of law? Some of the things that I've been thinking about when I look at this is to try and really get to grips with what the distinction is between some of the cases where names and addresses have been considered to be privileged and those where they're not. So there are two cases, two previous authorities that are referred to in the judgment. The first is contempt proceedings where we have a litigant who is literally on the run and has provided their name and address to their solicitors in order to get legal advice or litigation advice. The second is an unknown anonymous blogger who also was trying to get some advice in relation to their affairs. In both of those cases, the courts found that their names and addresses were privileged because they gave them to their solicitors for the purposes of getting 
legal advice. Now, when I first looked at it, I thought, well, doesn't every litigant give their name and address to their lawyers for the purpose of getting legal advice? Can that really be what's going on here? Yeah, and I, I think the answer to this is really that there are some people who could not really get legal advice if in so doing they would have to reveal their name and address to the opposing party. So these people, the, the unknown blogger and the potentially in contempt litigant on the run, if they knew that giving their advice, sorry, that giving their address would mean that they would have to open that up to the other side, they couldn't get any advice at all. So I think really what the court's doing there is making sure that it, there isn't a situation arising where people cannot get the advice or the support and litigation that they need. But it's quite tricky, isn't it? Because when people are seeking advice, they probably don't necessarily know that this will, in the end, be privileged. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, the test in, in the Lorelei case is that you it is not privileged unless it's going to hinder your ability to progress your litigation and to speak freely with your lawyers if it's disclosed. But the problem for me is you don't know that when you're instructing your solicitors or speaking to them. So at the time when you're supposed to be taking this free advice, when I say free, I mean freely yes. discursive, <laughs> you know, discursive advice, you won't know whether or not in due course it will be disclosed or not. So I think there's a sort of weird circularity to that point. What kind of cases or what examples can you think of where this type of thing might come up in the employment context? So, I mean, there are a few ideas about that. I think one is it could be quite interesting in a team move case, uh, particularly let's say you have a number of individual defendants. So a team move case is where you've got perhaps a claimant who is, which is a business, and you've got some employees who've left, maybe joined a competitor. There may be some other businesses also involved in all of that. And if it turned out that all of the litigation from the defendant side is being run by one particular institution, that could be a pretty interesting thing when it comes to thinking about the extent of the conspiracy, say, or something like that. Other possibilities might be if you were, say, a defendant in a, in a high court claim and you had a claimant who was professing to be impecunious, but you suspected that somebody else was actually running the litigation on their behalf. So you might well be interested to know who was instructing the lawyers in that case. The third possibility might be in, say, tribunal litigation, when you are looking at something like aggravated damages, and you want to know in a case where the a litigant seems to have been really high-handed or aggressive, who's responsible for that? Could this give rise to a claim in aggravated damages? How would that work? Well, I think what you would be trying to say is that the a respondent's approach, it would normally be a respondent for these purposes, to the litigation has been such that the tribunal should actually award aggravated damages. So I can imagine a case where you had an individual respondent and a corporate respondent in a, in a tribunal claim. So, for example, you have, you're bringing a claim against your line manager and also against the employer. And it turns out that, in fact, it was the line manager, who for these purposes is an extremely wealthy person, and that, in fact, she was controlling everything. And she had orchestrated the litigation and made sure that particular points were taken in such 
a way as to make it really, really difficult for you as an individual litigant to fight it and to bring your claim. And so how would this case be relevant to that or how would it fit in? Well, you might be able to find out that it was that woman who'd in fact been providing all of the instructions to the lawyers. Because it's not protected by privilege. In fact, you might be able to find out that in fact... It was a shell company, and the only person who'd been giving instructions is the woman who was in control of things. So you would know where to target your application. Earlier, you mentioned the possibility that this could apply to the other side of the coin. So there might be a question about whether or not the identity of the lawyers might be protected. What do you think the answer is to that? I mean, I think it's it, you just have to apply the test in exactly the same way as would disclosing the identity of the lawyers hinder a party's ability to speak openly with that lawyer or with another lawyer about their case? Would it hinder their ability to access legal advice? Has the identity of a lawyer on the other side ever affected the way that if you know about who it is, without mentioning any names, has that affected the way that you strategically run your case? Absolutely. In so many cases. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, the world of employment law is not huge. Yes. And when you've been around the block a bit, you end up knowing some of the characters and you know, well, you know that almost everybody is utterly lovely to deal with. You also know that some lawyers are more expensive than others. So you can work out if a party's not taking something seriously, trying to do it on the cheap, or conversely, are taking it very seriously and will leave no stone unturned. You know which lawyers are likely to be aggressive. You know which ones are likely to be reasonable as well. So I think it helps understand how the other party is is looking at the case and it can inform what approach you take in cases throughout the employment sphere. Just going back to the judgment again, I have to say, Judy, I was uh, very surprised by paragraph 35. I can see what you're saying about that, I think. (laughs) It really stood out to me as well. I think I need to read it out so that the listeners get to really hear it in its full beauty. So, I mean, to be fair, this is a quote from Well, it's an 1876 reported case, so it's late 19th century. But here you go. I'm going to read it in my best man voice. By reason of the complexity and difficulty of our law, litigation can only be properly conducted by professional men. It is absolutely necessary that a man, in order to prosecute his rights or to defend himself from an improper claim, should have recourse to the assistance of professional lawyers. And it goes on um, to use a vulgar phrase that he should be able to make a clean breast of it to the gentleman whom he consults with a view to the prosecution of his claim. Wow. Yeah, there you have it. So not only is law so difficult that only professional men can handle it, but only men really seem to have claims as well. Yeah, of Um, course. (laughs) And I, I mean, I did notice that while that is 1876, it goes on in the following paragraph to give some quotes, which are said to be in more modern language, but I see a lot of he's and his in there and no she's or hers at all. And it, it does just remind me that in our field, in particular, and in our chambers, we spend a lot of time thinking about diversity and inclusion and, you know, everything from microaggressions to, to discrimination and harassment. But actually reading judgments like this in itself is something that is quite eye-opening. And certainly we wouldn't term it like that in 2022. That was Judy Stone talking to me about Lorelei and Credit Suisse. 
You can subscribe to the 11KBW Employment Podcast on all the usual podcast apps. You can also email us at employmentpodcast at 11kbw.com.